Hello there, it's me, Phil Ryan again, and welcome back to the Story High podcast. Now, as you know, we are the home of amazing audio stories, and today we'll be playing you, as usual, three short fiction stories, and we think they're guaranteed, hmm, put a bit of a push that, to entertain and amaze you, but we're going to do our best. As I said, they always run quite short, so you've got tons of time to fit them in through the day. They're ideal, I think, for a quick break, just, you know, just to empty your mind and have a bit of an adventure. Now, we always say getting lost inside a story is pretty good for everybody. We think it's almost a kind of a medical necessity because good writing, it can really take you places and just take your mind off whatever's going on. Now, we will be delving into the art of the short story and writing as these episodes move on. But more importantly, we always ask you to support us on any social media you can come across because that really helps us. However, enough of the advertising, plug, plug, plug. It's time for your first story. And it's from today's three-story collection. And it's called The Circus Performer. Happy listening. The crowd flew past her, underneath, hundreds of feet away, the spotlights making her white and red feathered sequin leotard sparkle, and the white bar flew towards her. Blair flew through the air gracefully, seemingly weightless, and a huge gasp rose from the crowd, and she grabbed the white bar quickly and strongly, a double, triple somersault, a seemingly impossible feat they'd all just seen. And the music flared, and the drums crashed, and the applause was deafening. She'd lost count of the shows now. Years on the road, seven countries, her life a mad dash of costume changes and practice, and a Shazaya. Her little Shazaya, just nine years old, her cheeky little angel, full of fire and mischief, their caravan, a toy heaven for her, pink interior, bright red fold-away bed. Blair had been good at school, Mum and Dad both worked for the fire service, Mum in their training department and Dad a borough watch commander. And life had been as normal as could be, with no hint of this, her life now. College had started, studying sports therapy, but the bug had bitten at a young age. Acrobatics, competitions, practising. That had been Blair, aged just seven, younger than little Shazai was now. Her small face screwed up in concentration. Benfield Acrobats Club, Worsley. Their little champion, Miss Hall had called her. Herself a gold medalist for the Irish national team in the Olympics in her youth. Pommel horse and bars. The crowd broke into more applause. And down she climbed. The long, thick, white safety rope, lowering her to the ground. The boys behind the curtain, holding it tightly allowing her to gracefully ascend to the ground. Now, she thought, what should we have for tea? Shaziah sneaked another chip and Blair laughed and reminded her of her homework. It was four rest days until the weekend, the open caravan door letting the cool evening wind blow inside. And it was summer, late August, a busy time for everyone. The decision to run away and join the circus had been a little unusual. Blair had been doing a trapeze class at a circus school in town. An agent had seen her and then came the job offer. 
the hardest decision of her life, she would later say in interviews for her book. There she was, a single mum, after Josiah's dad had just bailed on them, heading back to a North Sea oil rig, never to be heard from again, no money sent, no contact. Blair had hated him for that. The long nights cradling her baby, saying she'd got her, she'd got her, and she'd keep her safe. But mum and dad had been brilliant. Granny too, a fierce bunch, highly protective of their jewel of a child and grandchild. She'd worked at a large gym, a multinational chain, and the money was good, her prospects secure. But something was missing. The something she couldn't put a finger on. Mum always said she'd been a restless child, always up to something, never sitting still, ants in her pants, Dad had said. And it had been a bold move, one she'd carefully considered, to give up her safe life, her terraced house, for what? A travelling life, a slightly cramped caravan. More importantly, to uproot Shaziah from everything she'd ever known. Shaziah being four years old at the time. But it had called to her, the road the performances, the circus life. There was no question of Shaziah not having an education. Arrangements had been made, weeks in different schools, home education, online learning. Blair was determined her little angel would be informed, well-read, skilled in languages. Cuddles were mandatory, bedtime stories too, and treats and days out part of their family life together plus regular visits to Granny and her parents. And so the pattern had been set. They had a wardrobe of different coloured school dresses, one for each new school. Homework was non-negotiable. It had to be done. No homework, no circus practice. And so their new life had begun. It was wonderful and they both thrived. Only last month they'd celebrated Shazai's ninth birthday. The whole circus family there, the outfit being in a field somewhere outside Yeovil. The summer cuckoo fair, an ancient fair, one of the many regular stops the circus took every year. Now, of course, they were a modern circus, no performing animals, just feats of dazzling human ingenuity and athleticism. The flying bandinis, Hercules the Great, and the devil riders on their trial bikes, riding round and round in a huge spinning steel cage. Boppo and Trixie, the juggling clowns. It was all good old-fashioned family fun. Stage managed to a thrilling soundtrack, an amazing light show, holograms and lasers involved. Blair was the Silver Eagle, her feathered costumes trailing out behind her as she flew from bar to bar on the highest trapeze. Her lithe body whirling and spinning, her feats seemingly to defy gravity itself. Little Josiah now helped her mother with the team on the safety rope. She'd been quickly incorporated into the show at her request. Just a little tumbling routine. Blair was never going to force her to do anything she didn't want to do. In fact, she told her granny it was more like stopping her performing more than anything. And of course, Shazai was sport by everyone, riding around on Hercules the Great's huge shoulders, or Pieter Dremetri from Hungary as he really was. Her language classes from Mrs Bandini, who spoke five languages fluently. And the devil riders had even got her a little electric trials bike, which they used to run alongside with her on, her small face one massive grin. 
She was everyone's little angel, Hercules said. Even Mr. Danson, the costume master, promising her a new performance outfit if she kept her practising up, as if he or anyone could stop her. They'd arrived two nights earlier, the crew unpacking and setting everything up, the generators, the water supplies, the regular breathing into life of the big top, a brightly coloured striped confection of canvas and rigging ropes. And Blair stood in the now fully prepared side entrance doorway of the tent, watching Shazia as Boppo put her through her tumbling paces. She now had a little routine they were incorporating into the show that night, his stentorian tones ringing out, and twist and flip and stand and turn, the little girl deep in focus, her small face a study of concentration. Blair felt her heart melt. Bless her darling heart, a voice said, and she turned, and Mrs Mercato reached out and patted her shoulder. Bold and fearless, just like her mother, eh? A fly, you think? A real chip off the old block? Blair nodded and smiled brightly, Shazia longing to join her mother, high in the tent top, spotlights sparkling off her, swinging from bar to bar, flying through the air, graceful as a feather. But now she was too young. It was too dangerous, her small hands not strong enough to safely grip the bars. Her dreams could wait until she was older. And there was plenty of time. They had years. The time bell rang. Time to clear away and prepare. Tonight's show started at eight on the dot. They never missed a start time. It was their tradition, much like their chosen skills, fixed and studied and practised, for the show would go on. The run was going well. Capacity crowds, no trouble apart from the usual ones, council interference, bad weather, and Mrs Mercato, the owner, generally very satisfied. The circus having been in her family for over a hundred years. Originally from Turin, the family had performed for the crowned heads of Europe, the Pope himself, and numerous presidents and prime ministers. In short, they were an institution. Most of their pitches around the country, going back decades, Old agreements updated, but a strong fixed calendar, and the performers liked this. Their old winter layoff now replaced by a series of indoor performances at various festivals. Everyone was well paid. They saved, they planned. It was the way of modern circus folk. Nothing was left to chance. And happily, no one ever seemed to leave the troupe. Although occasionally some would retire, others choose a new path. But in all in all, they were a really tight bunch. Whatever happened, one rule was paramount. The show must go on. It was a message encoded in all their DNA. The show must go on. The generations before never breaking that rule. Shazai had finished her afternoon homework. She'd been at a local school as now, once again, she was practising her tumbling in the main ring with Boppo, or Stanley Chambers to those who really knew him, although the performers still called him Boppo. Once a clown, always a clown, he said. It's my given clown name until I die, and I'm proud of it. It was a serious and ancient tradition, and so Boppo he was to everyone. Shazai had earlier been allowed a small session on a low trapeze, but only at ten feet level, under the safety net, 
with two of the flying bandinis in attendance. She was very brave and a very sensible little girl. She listened to her mum. Everyone did. Blair knew her aerial stuff. Everyone agreed. An absolute professional. Super fit and super smart. Around them, the ring was being finely prepared. The lighting rigs floating high up into the upper rigging. Blair's trapeze platform in its place and double tested. Health and safety here was no joke. Everything mattered. It was just a sensible course of action. A fixed thing. The day passed pleasantly. and Blair and Shaziah had their tea of salad and fresh pasta outside the caravan at their fold-out table. The sunshine still bright in a blue sky. Until early evening fell, peppering the now purpling sky with stars. Until soon the circus grounds lit up thousands of lights twinkling and the crowd arrived full of excitement and wonder little ones trembling with glee the grown-ups taking back to childhood memories of popcorn and candy floss and innocence because it was showtime the show began and the crowds clapped and cheered the devil riders huge steel ball glinting in the hard white side spotlights their bikes upside down sideways Backwards, trailing smoke and music thump, 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 the energy electrifying the very air until it was time for the crowd to see the Silver Eagle and roaring their approval as Blair appeared on high, her costume sparkling and winking way, way above them. And she flew like her namesake, the Eagle, soaring and dipping her air-defying feats making the crowd leap to their feet and gasp until the music fell away. It was time. The famous triple leap and spin, the highlight of the whole routine, and the music stopped and Blair breathed in. Swing and spin and turn and flip her main routine of long, hard practice, making every move seem effortless and full of grace. Everything prepared for. However, nothing could prepare her or any of the crew for the failing of two thick and long steel pins. Metal fatigue, the later conclusion. The same pins that held the upper swing bar in position, the same swing bar Blair was currently holding on to. The long fall to the safety net, no means of guarantee of no injury, as now pieces of rigging fell around her, a whirling, whipping tangle of vicious thin steel cables making the air hum. And Blair's mind whirled, and she shouted the cancel signal, and she desperately tried to hold until the soon-to-fall bar to prepare herself. When, to her surprise, from the corner of her eye, something blurred and golden flew into her eyeline. It was Shaziah, her small muscled body encased in a golden costume, a glimmering cascade of crystals and sequins, white angel wings trailing out behind her, her new costume finally finished. And before Blair could react, her daughter's small arms were around her, her legs holding her fast, 
the thick white safety rope tight in her hands, her little face fierce and determined. I've got you, Mum, she said. I've got you. You're safe now. A chip off the old block, as Mrs Macarto had said. A real chip off the old block. Well, we hoped you enjoyed that story. Uh, we did. Um, and in fact, we're still smiling about it. Now, here comes the second story. And this one is called Gianfranco's story. And as always, with our usual quick spoiler, things here aren't quite all they seem. The thunder rumbled. Across the city, the air was hot. A lightning flash flickered across the sky. September, Rome. Gianfranco scratched himself idly with his sword. The day had been good. The Colosseum had been busy. And he made some good money posing for tourist pictures in his centurion outfit. They loved it. Framed forever with a bronzed young centurion in a red cape, and he counted the thick wad of euros. Time to go home. He sweated from the walk back up the hill, the small luggage trolley with his armour in clattering on the black cobbles. And once back in his apartment, he gratefully dragged off his tunic and headed for the shower. The water drove pleasantly across his muscle-filled shoulders, and catching a reflection of himself in the glass, he smiled. Still got it. Thirty-five or not, he looked good. This stupid centurion thing was just temporary anyway, he thought. His new promotion photos were nearly ready. Monday, they told him, then he'd be made. The girl at the model agency had said lots of good things. And although she'd been vague about actual work, he could read between the lines. He had it. He knew that. His mobile buzzed, and he ignored it, glancing at the screen. It was that Korean woman again, the tourist he'd met. But he was tired. The sex with her was not bad, considering her age, and the money was very good. But he didn't feel like banging her with that heavy helmet on, not in a day like this. His friend Tony had put him onto the whole thing. They'd been to school together and then a chance meeting just the year before. Fate, Tony said. The old job at the resort had been good, but after ten years waiting tables and screwing drunken English girls, enough was enough. Mama had died, and he'd come back to look after his father. It was unfortunate the old man should die just three months later, but still, he got the apartment, and stepping wearily out of the shower, he dried himself off. It was Tony who'd got him into the whole centurion thing. He knew the right people. He'd even gotten the outfit. As long as Gianfranco paid Tony a little commission each month, he got left alone. Like most things in Rome, things were controlled, and by people it didn't pay to upset. And so he stood, idly stirring some fresh pasta in a pan, standing in his towel, watching the football on the small television. Tonight... Yeah, he'd sleep, he thought. The weekend was a day away, and he had a date with some American college girls he'd met the day before. Young ones, dumb ones, the best. Virgins, probably. 
He'd see to that. Life was pretty good, he thought, and laying back on the couch with his dinner filling his stomach, he felt his eyes grow heavy. He awoke to the sound of an ambulance siren, and yawning hugely he stepped into the bathroom. Lots of tourists flocked to the Colosseum on Fridays. Many of the coach parties in particular chose that day. It was always a good idea to get down early to begin the hustle. He'd recently agreed to work with Franco. Franco was a good friend of Tony's. They made a good pair. Franco was tall and imperious and dressed as Caesar, and together they looked very imposing. Giancarlo's muscled frame to one side, Franco's height on the other. And Franco had a little carpeted stage with the throne and two chairs on it. He had this trailer on his moped, and cleverly the whole thing was really light and mounted on small fat wheels. They could really make a lot of money when they worked together. Up to four people could sit on the chairs. Five euros each pitcher. In a good hour, they could pull in a few hundred. It wasn't a bad income. The sexy money, as he called it, paid for his car repair loan. The first time it had happened, he hadn't really been prepared. It had been an American woman in her fifties, a tourist. He'd had his picture taken with her. Then she'd given him a hotel address. She'd invite him for a drink and he'd gone. And then one thing led to another. Now her body was still firm, he'd thought, and she'd been a good lover. And he'd kept his outfit partly on during the sex. She'd insisted. But as he was leaving the next morning, she'd pressed the cash into his hand and laughed a smoky laugh. He told Tony, of course, who winked and clapped him on the shoulder. Ha! It's the centurion thing. Fantasy. Women love it. And they'll pay. You see. And he'd been right. Three or four times a month, he found himself leaving hotels in the early hours of the morning. But he chose them. He never went back with anyone he didn't like the look of. And it wasn't prostitution, he reasoned. It was a service, just like those films he'd made. And Tony, he was a good friend, and he'd never steered him wrong. It was a warm day as he strolled down the hill, and he changed in the park. Oh, he sighed. It was going to be hot in that damn plume helmet, but business was business, and in no time he was in position. The Colosseum rising up behind them, its towering walls casting a pleasant shadow. The place was swarming with tourists, and Franco was really on form as Caesar. He bellowed across the square and fooled around. Crowds formed and parted and came and went. Cameras flashed, and he almost started enjoying himself. In between pictures, he fooled around with Franco and Alberto and Romano, the two old guys. Now, their centurion outfits were a bit threadbare. Romano must have been 60 and Albert even older. And they'd been doing it for years and they told him loads of tricks. And of course, there was Max, the huge guy in the gladiator outfit. Apparently, he'd been in the fire service, but he'd hurt his back. And so now, here he was with them. Oh, yeah, and that weird kid. A girl, what, Ginny? She was some kind of art student. and She made herself up like a Roman statue, covered in this great paint goo stuff. And she just stood, stock, still. And she only moved when coins clinked into a cup. But she never spoke to anyone. Not to him or any of the guys. 
Lesbian, he thought. Probably. He lifted his sword to the grinning Indian kids. And the little one, Ali, poor twisted cripple. He sold umbrellas when it rained and roses when it was sunny. One of his legs was kind of weird and withered and he used it as a tool to gain sympathy on days when he just begged up by the churches. Once, Gianfranco had let him wear his helmet and hold his sword. The kid could only have been about 13 or 14. A legal immigrant, of course. The place was full of them, poor little bastards. Lunch, he bought from one of the food wagons. He paid local prices, Tony told him, not the inflated tourist ones on the board. And the afternoon rolled by, his money pouch filling very pleasantly. He first saw the girl when she stopped to watch him messing around with four Japanese tourists. As usual, he was posing on the chairs, holding their phones, grinning and smiling, mock-fighting poses, incongruous smiles. But then he caught her eye. She looked to be about 20, and she was stunning. He couldn't take his eyes off her. He knew class when he saw it. Her bag, real Fendi, and the watch top-end Rolex. She was money. She had that look. And as he finished, he crouched down behind the podium and hunted in his bag for a towel. But he looked through the chairs. There she was, still standing there. He grinned to himself. So, she likes the idea of a centurion. He checked himself in the small mirror. He'd, uh, yeah, he'd used the line about being an actor, sort of resting. A production had failed and he was just standing in for a friend. He'd used it before and they always fell for it. He had such an innocent look when he wanted. His late mother used to call him her sweet little liar. Oh, he missed her. And his chest briefly tightened at her memory. And he crossed himself and then glanced up again. She was still there, the girl. Luckily, there was a lull. This was common, gaps between tourist parties and tours. The coaches came and went. And it was a welcome break on a hot day like today. Franco sat and opened his newspaper. And with his back to the girl, Jean Franco winked at him. And his friend became more absorbed in his paper. He knew what was about to happen. Jean Franco turned and bowed theatrically. My queen, I would die for thee. And she laughed and smiled. Oh, oh, oh please don't do that. And he stood up. <laughs> Excuse me, it's been a mad day. I'm filling in for a friend and, to be honest, I think I'm letting the role get to me. He held out his hand. Hi, I I'm Gianfranco. I I'm an actor. And she shook it gently, her pale eyes locking with his. Ah, oh, I'm Gina. She was about to say something more when her phone rang and she looked momentarily flustered. Oh, oh excuse me, just woman, I'm sorry. And she pulled her phone from a slim leather case and he nodded, smiling, and he turned himself sideways to her. Money, real money. Her phone was a Vertu, platinum, plated. Five, ten thousand euros at least. Be cool, he thought. Just pretend to be studying the building, looking around. He heard her finish the call and he turned back. Oh, I'm so sorry, she said, holding out her hand. I I I'm Gina. And they both laughed together. 
He went into his story about his actor friend and he was stepping in and helping out. Then, to his delight, she accepted his offer of coffee at six at La Bica, just up on the hill. He tapped her number into his phone. It wasn't a Vertu, but it was a new iPhone, so he was still in there, in the cool stakes he felt. And he watched her walking away, and he imagined her naked on his bed. Nice backside, he thought. And then Franco's booming voice filled the square again. He looked around him. Great Americans and Japanese. Time to hustle. Money. Thankfully, he'd bought a change of clothes in his wheeled luggage case. And as the closing time approached, he quickly got himself ready. After around five, things tended to die away anyway. The ticket office was closed and most of the tourists headed back to their hotels for dinner. Franco mounted his scooter and sped away, waving and grinning at him. Time to meet the girl, he thought. He left his costume bag with Patrick, his friend at the Taverna del Caranta, just down the way, and soon he was in place at La Bica at an outside table with a view. The sky was darkening, and he saw Ali and his friends running and hawking umbrellas down by the metro. The poor Indian kids. God knows how they got there. The September weather constantly changed. Sun and rain, rain and sun. And he sipped his coffee appreciatively. Well, the place was his home. And becoming absorbed with the text message, he didn't see her sit down next to him. And he glanced up, slightly startled, but recovered well. She was breathtaking. Huge green eyes and a heart-shaped face. And she broke into a long rambling explanation about how she was studying history and she was only in Rome for two more days. And he sat and listened, transfixed. And the time passed quickly and he found himself inviting her for dinner. And she agreed. This was going perfectly, he thought. He was glad he'd paid the woman downstairs to clean the apartment. At least when they went back later, it wouldn't look too low rent. It was furnished very well. He'd done pretty good that year. One of the pornos he'd done had given him an unexpected bonus and he'd got some great stuff through a contact. Tony was such a friend. And of course, he had his beloved Alpha Spider. The only thing he'd ever wanted from his father. And of course, when he'd passed away... He'd finally inherited it, the car he'd sat in as a child, a classic Alfa Romeo, red, sporty, a real beauty, but in need of much renovation, and it hadn't been cheap. So he got a loan, the respray, the new fittings, but he didn't care. The result was outstanding, and of course the girls loved it. You could see their expressions when he pulled up, shiny, sparkling chrome wheels. It was an extension of his personality, he felt. The dinner was good. The girl seemed to lap up his nonsense about the next film role he was interested in, and soon it was getting close to midnight. Coffee at his apartment was accepted, and his friend Patrick gave him a look as he paid the bill. This was a special one, he thought. And making some joke about retrieving his props, he threw his case into the boot of the taxi. Although in truth, he only lived about ten minutes up the hill. 
but he wanted to surround her. This was always that dangerous time with girls where they, they could change their minds, they weren't sure. And as they made their way up the stairs, he watched a lithe figure in front of him. He opened the door. The apartment looked fine. His sword collection above the fireplace gleaming and the full-length colour picture of him in his centurion costume leaning against the far wall. Signorina Polidoro had even put some flowers in a vase on the dining table. It was perfect. And he watched as the girl stood by the great window, looking out to the Colosseum. That view. It always got them. Mama and Papa had loved the place. And now it was time for the final part. He made some excuse and left her in the living room, and quickly running into the bedroom, he pulled on his spare costume. It drove them crazy, the red cape, the helmet, and smiling to himself, he went back in to surprise her. The lights were off, the room now in total darkness, and he stopped, unsure of what had happened. The girl called his name, and as he turned, she pushed one of his swords through his thin leather chest plate, and he, he staggered back, and collapsing to the floor, he rested his back against his picture. His legs were just useless, and he felt hot blood running slowly down his thighs. What, what, was, what was happening? The girl stood framed by the window. My sister came here last year, and you took her. She was 16, and told you not to, but you took her anyway, didn't you? Gianfranco's head was spinning. He was losing oxygen. What, what, was, what was she on about? A girl last year? She leaned down and stared intently into his uncomprehending eyes, and a flash lit the room as she lifted a small silver camera. It's all a game to you, isn't it? One last photo, I think. And then darkness flooded over him. He fell forward, a final breath hissing from his slack mouth, the sword hardly moving. The girl, white at the thin rubber gloves she was wearing, cleaning them with a tissue. No fingerprints. And then, padding quietly across the rug, she let herself out. It was raining when she pulled the small umbrella from her bag. Typical Rome weather, she thought, and she sheltered briefly in a shop doorway. Her heart was pounding and she trembled as she fumbled for the picture. There it was in her bag. Eva with that idiot. She turned it over. September. Rome, Eva's tiny handwriting, and tears coursed down her face. She'd show Eva her new picture. That would make it right, she hoped. Because now it was done. And straightening herself, she headed into the Rome night. Well, I think you'll agree, he probably got what he deserved. So thanks for listening to Gianfranco's story, or 
ex Gianfranco. Now in the next episode, we're gonna begin the writing tips and thoughts as I've said. But the final story today is called Good Old Martin. And I'm betting you've probably met this guy in your company or somewhere in work before. She sat back as behind her the list on the screen appeared and the chairman leaned forwards in his chair. The woman continued, So, further to my final report, here's a first point of interest regarding team efficiency. And a picture came up of a smiling middle-aged man. And the chairman smiled. Ah, yes, good old Martin. And the woman raised an eyebrow. Yes, quite, yes. Good old, good old Martin. Uh, Martin Holdwick, uh, recently retired. She glanced at her iPad. After 35 years with your company. Tell me, Mr Stevens, just out of interest, what exactly did Mr Holdwick do? His position, I mean. And the chairman went to speak and, and then he stopped and he thought a second and then slightly frowned. Well, uh, um, <laughs> I've got to confess, I'm not actually quite sure. And he beamed. Still, still, good old Martin. Lovely chap, lovely chap. His voice full of pleasure. She looked at her iPad again. Yes, good old Martin. And she swiped the screen. And behind her, a spreadsheet appeared. And she looked back at the chairman. Now, I realise this may seem at first a little academic. Well, now that Mr Holdwick, uh, good old Martin, has indeed left your employ. But in the course of my reporting, and then she paused for emphasis, the one you commissioned... I think a little background might help, as it does speak to your general hiring operations, I feel. She sat forward. According to your records, Mr Holdwick came to your organisation some 35 years ago. A new slide appeared on the screen. In the course of his employ, from available but occasional incomplete records, he held, she looked down, uh, approximately 400 meetings, she brushed some fluff from her sleeve, some 300 briefings and let me see yes yes he created over 6000 documents and information sheets the chairman nodded sagely excellent yes excellent very impressive very impressive the woman continued yes in, indeed quite an output um however she stopped and now looked directly into the chairman's eyes in all his time with your organization his actual contribution came to she paused. Precisely zero. The chairman looked confused. Zero? Good old Martin. Zero, Al Martin. The woman nodded. Well, if I'm to be completely honest, it actually calculates out at, and you're not going to like this, but less than zero. When one takes, say, into account the salary of £32,000, his occupation of a small office on the fifth floor, its maintenance, the photocopier, his phone, his laptop. She scribbled some quick numbers. Now look, I'll admit it's not completely accurate here, but it's quite close. And hmm, I would say in his time with you and your organisation across the years, he kind of worked here. You financially somewhere spent in the region of between 1.2 or 1.3 million pounds, in fact, on Martin. The chairman looked bemused, and the woman smiled thinly. Now, Mr Holdwick was originally employed under Sir Rodney Bennett, your predecessor, and he was originally taken on by, she paused again, a Mr Colin Holdwick as his replacement. Uh, yes, it appears 
his late uncle, as I now understand. The job title being resource officer? She glanced at the chairman, who was now sipping his water. Now, Mr Colin Holdwick had originally been taken on by Mr Hugh Holdwick. Uh, Mr Colin Holdwick's uncle, it appears. Hmm. Now, having looked at your company records, Mr Holdwick, or Martin Holdwick, seems to have continued with both his uncle's legacies very well. She tapped her pen with such meetings and, I now quote, correct use of a waste paper basket. Oh, and one of my personal favourites, dealing with cobwebs. She pointed to the screen and began to read aloud. Now, this is just a sample of some of the documents Mr Holdwick created and circulated through the building in his time with you. <clears throat> she cleared her throat. Engaging in a modern forward-thinking environment, it is imperative that all understandings must be made while engaging across each department. Special attention must be made with conclusions and outcomes wherever they may occur. The chairman looked at her, baffled, and the woman continued. Oh, 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 oh this one where Mr Holwick says that no one should doubt the imperative nature of any imperative not heavily expanded upon, but nonetheless acknowledged in a multi-departmental approach. She looked up, and, and sorry, just, just, just one last one. The organisation must strive for a better grasp of anything that needs grasping in a forthright but sensitive manner regarding any movement, whether it be lateral or vertical, departmental, in its approach. The chairman looked confused and shook his head. But it's all gibberish. It doesn't say anything at all. It's just words. The woman nodded. Yes, I'm afraid so. Very much like his monthly briefings. Now, apparently, people were always happy to attend just to get a break. Also, he was incredibly popular across every department. He remembered everyone's names, birthdays. He provided cakes and balloons. And she tapped her pen again. And as far as I've been able to ascertain, uh, Mr Holwick, <laughs> good old Martin, was universally liked. He really, really was. In fact, I go as far to say, sir, he was actually beloved. He attended every official company function. He took buckets around on every charity fundraising day. He made paper chains, assisted in putting up decorations at Christmas, and indeed any other festival celebrated. But apart from that, he actually did precisely nothing. But all the while he drew his salary and he never missed a single day's work. The chairman looked more confused. The woman continued, Now, our group was hired by you to give a full and comprehensive report on your organisation. The flaws, the weaknesses and indeed its strengths and opportunities. And she now nodded for emphasis. You know, we're leaders in our field. Our reputation, it goes without saying, is gold standard. I myself have been doing this as a management consultant for 30 years myself. She swiped her iPad. As an organisation, we are constantly reviewing and consulting with companies and it may interest you to know many companies. The screen now behind her, filled with a series of pictures of various bland, unmemorable men in suits. Clearly official photographs. Now, having checked with many of my colleagues and other client company reports, we've actually found 60 members of the Holdwick family occupying similar positions in around 60 other companies in various sectors around the country. And we found they're incredibly popular in every place they are. And that's the companies that we directly deal with ourselves. For all we know, there may be more. Now, again, rather interestingly, in the past two years, 
Many have retired to be replaced by the screen clipped and filled with more pictures of younger-looking men in suits formerly posed, the next generation of Holdwicks. The chairman looked utterly amazed. Um, Holdwicks, and do, do we have a, a new Mr Holdwick? The woman smiled sadly. Well, I'm glad you asked, because yes, indeed, you do, I'm afraid. You now have a young Mr Michael Holdwick, whose last meeting on fire extinguishers from a safety perspective was a great hit. Apparently there were mini rolls, chocolate, jam, biscuits. She shook her head sadly. However, there is a slight issue you're facing, and that is, under the terms of the contract he signed with his predecessor, she made a half smile, a good old Martin, well, to put it into a nutshell, to actually get rid of him would present some issues. In fact, my company has found that across the board, with every Mr Holdwick, their terms of employment and job description are very clear, and to try and remove them could prove very costly indeed in terms of redundancy, payoffs and compensation. The chairman gasped out loud. What, what, what can we do? The woman sighed. And she flicked her iPad again. A new chart appeared. Well? As far as myself and my colleagues have determined, it's probably best just to leave him alone. The chairman banged the desk. Leave him alone? Leave him alone? He, but he doesn't do anything. The woman chuckled grimly. Well... Considering in every organisation it seems there's more than a few Mr Holdwicks and just like various of your upper management levels, they're vaguely semi-efficient at best and just about move things along. We think in a way, leaving them all alone, well, it's just for an easy life if I'm honest. Cheaper too. She closed her iPad. It's up to you really. She shook her head. I have a small confession to make. We've looked into this report, we've studied it, and if it's any consolation, our company has one of our own. Graham Holdwick, Human Focus Office. Apparently he retires next year. He's got a young relative, I think, lined up to replace him. And she shrugged helplessly. And then right at that point, someone knocked quietly on the glass door. And the chairman was still shaking his head, and he said in a slightly annoyed tone, "Yep, Yes, come in. And his secretary, Miss Chaston, smilingly stepped into the room. Oh, sorry to disturb you, sir. Um, uh, uh, madam, sorry. But it's the children's charity collection. And she paused and now gave a beaming smile. It's just good old Michael. Well, that's the end of our selection for today. And do remember, listen in every week and we're setting up brand new episodes even as we speak. And as I mentioned before, these are specially curated stories taken from our main platform, The Story Hive, which you can find at, you probably know it by now, www.thestoryhive.co.uk. And there's tons and tons there to listen, and it's all completely free. Now, we are, as I said, on all the media platforms. If you can follow us, give us a thumbs up or a like, really helps us. And we do actually appreciate support. We really, really do. Anyway... It's time for me to say goodbye again, but as always, I hope your day goes well and the world runs smoothly for you. Bye now. 